Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. Endometriosis feels to me like someone's hand is literally clenched up in a fist with all the knives on all of the digits and then it goes right up inside you, just near your lungs and then it kind of punches you two, three, four, hundreds of times. The pain makes you feel like you're living outside of your body, like you're almost the shadow your body is just kind of walking alongside. You're just a thing, you're no longer a person. Actually, your pain has just taken over every single ounce of you. This is a harrowing episode of this pathological life coming up. And I don't know this personally, apart from having been in a relationship with a woman who suffered from endometriosis. And and the closest reaction I've had to it was having to go out to the pharmacy late at night to get certain painkillers that were blue colored that were the only things that would bring relief it's the pain can be crippling and dr travis brown you're going to take us on uh, an incredible journey into uh, endometriosis as is dr nicole sladden yeah look sometimes when when we decide on a topic you you start the research and you're unaware of the path that you're about to go down. And this is absolutely true for this podcast. There is a term that I'll, I'll borrow from, from one of my favourite podcasters, Dan Carlin, who, who does history. Uh, he, he uses a word that's called logical insanity. And because he he's enjoys sort of war history, sometimes decisions and where people find themselves in history... You look at it and go, how did they get to this point? And you realize when you trace the steps, you can understand how they got there. It still doesn't change where they are. Um, And this is effectively a story of the tragedy of hysteria. Uh, And you'll see this story play out before us as we go through. And again, it is an unusual path to go down. Uh, One of the... uh, resources that I've found uh, been fantastic in this is is by an author, Cameron Nezat, uh, who wrote an article in Fertility and, and uh, Sterility in 2012 called Endometriosis, Ancient Disease and Ancient Treatments. So if you want more detail about what we discuss, it's certainly in, in that article. Uh, but it's important to note that endometriosis is, is a modern diagnosis. It's associated with subfertility or infertility and and severe menstrual uh, pain. We can only really confirm this diagnosis when we do uh, histological examinations. So someone has a a laparoscopy, they take a biopsy and they find endometrial tissue outside the uterine cavity. In history, when we start to find, okay, well, where can we find sort of traces of this disease? Now, it had to be about because it is that prevalent. But again, ancient societies and in the Middle Ages, they didn't have these techniques to be able to diagnose it. So you end up falling into a category of women's health with menstruation and and physical manifestations of disease. These aren't often discussed. You know, history is written by men, even though sort of every woman would have come across these uh, issues, whether they themselves or someone. It's not detailed in history. So you actually have to find bits of information and then try and sort of piece it together. We, we have, when we look at, you know, ancient references, there, there is references to, to menstruation, and sometimes it's a blessing and sometimes it's a curse. And in ancient Egypt, sometimes they thought it was a, a blessing. When you go to the Bible, you, you find out that women are ceremonially unclean when they have uh, their period. And even if someone touches her during this time, they are unclean for a day. So it's, it's interesting when you look at the ancient Greeks, they believed that women would generally get their periods around the age of 14. However, if she didn't 
get it by this age, they believe the excess blood would gather around her heart and would lead to symptoms such as fever or erratic behaviour or violent swearing and even have suicidal depression. And what you find is a recurring theme in the ancient texts, of, be it Egyptians, Greeks and Romans. And they refer to period pain as a strangulation or suffocation of the womb. And this is where we get a recurring premise. The uterus was not a regular organ, but one that was more animalistic and hungry for motherhood. And so this leads us to the pretty much the foundation or the, the dogma that stayed around for several millennia. If a woman did not fulfil the prescribed roles of marriage and motherhood, her uterus would be deprived of its intended purpose. Therefore, this would lead to the uterus to wander in the abdomen and cause all matter of illnesses. This brings us to the concept of the wandering womb. And it, it's the cause of symptoms and pathology that was believed through ancient all the way through to the Middle Ages. And we get to the Hippocratic Corpus, which is a collection of about 60 uh, medical works and documents. And it attributes the, it's attributed to the physician Hippocrates and his teachings and was written around 5th to the 4th century BCE. And there were factors that were predictive of gynecological disease. Menstrual dysfunction was believed to be a cause of disease as, the, as opposed to the other way around. Pregnancy was a cure of this. And those that didn't have this treatment were at risk of pain and infertility as a result. For thousands of years, women who suffered from dysmenorrhea, so, you know, severe pain for, for periods, were urged to get married and conceive as quickly as possible because this was not only a treatment but also a preventative for gynecological disease. And we have a paraphrased quote from uh, Hippocrates' writing. If they have never been pregnant, the deranged state of menstruation is more common and more dangerous than when they have born children, and she will be released from this disease when she is pregnant. We then have writings from Plato, who, you know, Greek, and, and Pliny the Elder, who was a Roman author, separated by 400 years, and they both classify extreme menstrual pain as this suffocation of the womb. You know, Plato, 400 years uh, BCE, wrote, When the womb remains barren too long after puberty, is distressed and sorely disturbed, and straying about the body and cutting off the passages of breath, it impedes respiration and brings the sufferer into the extremest anguish and provides all manner of illnesses besides. Celsus, who was a Roman scholar in 25 BCE to 45 CE, he wrote that women suffered violent illness coming from the womb. Uh, they could fall down as if suffering from epilepsy. The description he wrote would be they would lie down as if they were in their sleep. And some suffered their entire lives with this. We have Dioscorides from 40 to 90 CD, who, who is famous for being a herbalist and having documented around about a thousand herbal remedies, described the strangulation of the uterus and the severe menstrual pain, was able to render a woman unconscious. We have a, a man, a Greek physician known as Serenus. Uh, I don't think that's his name. I think that's what happens when a man is paternalistic about period pain. But Serenus of Ephesus was a Greek physician who was between uh, 98 and 138 CE. He suggested that there was inflammation of the uterus might cause or contribute to the suffocation of the womb. And he quoted, Many women who have menstruating difficulty and pain because of long widowhood have menstruated freely after marrying again. Again, the recurring theme, pregnancy was healthy, the uterus was fulfilling its role, and people were better afterwards. We have Galen of Pergamon, who wrote that suffocation of the womb was triggered by membranes that were anchored to the uterus, and they became engorged with excessive menstrual blood. And he believed 
that young widows could be driven to madness as a result of their loss of sexual fulfillment. What we're looking at here is a span of over 600 years of the greatest intellectuals of their time. And we've moved very little in the progress of women's health here with menstrual pain. Symptoms attributed to womb suffocation at this time were things like abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, digestive disorder, even gritting your teeth, excessive perspiration, palpitations, uh, ashen skin, uh, convulsions, epileptic-like fits. And the treatments they had were therapies and fumigant suppositories included of things like pomegranates and chast trees, which was uh, used as a contraceptive over the centuries. Things even like tar water, which is pine tar mixed with water, which apparently has a disgusting taste and it's even used by Charles Dickens in uh, his Great Expectations book where the character Pip drinks it as a punishment. But this was believed to be so effective, people were discouraged from drinking it because it would make you barren forever. There was even things like uh, drinking or uh, suppositories of the urine of men or bulls. Um, and it was believed to counteract the effect of the pain. And, and mind you, if that sounds far-fetched, we actually use hormone replacement from uh, pregnant horses uh, to this day as a hormone replacement. Uh, urine extract, it's called pre-marin, which is uh, pregnant, so pre-ma, which is mare, in urine. So it's an extract that oh. we use this day. So maybe they were onto something back then, but again, in a different way. And even Dioscorides used um, shellfish shells and other prescriptions such as bed bugs or brains to try and treat this. And the result of all this is that the ancients believed women who do not fulfill their perceived natural feminine role and to get married and to get pregnant were, were at great risk of gynecological disease. From there, the most appropriate age that people, that women were to get married was about a year after their first menstruation. To not do this was to deny the uterus its natural purpose and therefore risk increase chances of disease. And again, this was for all gynecological diseases. There was no distinction and even some non-gynecological diseases would have been attributed to that. It's a one-size-fits-all. However, as we approach the Middle Ages, things are about to get a whole lot darker. And before we do, I've got to mention something from the ancient world, that advice about getting pregnant to deal with, well, endometriosis, as we're talking about, was still advice that I remember a girlfriend being given in the late 1980s. It's amazing because you'll find that diagnosis, classifications, even our terminology, survives thousands of years. Gee. Uh, it is a... <laughs> once something's in a, in a belief... Um, it can be strongly held for long times. Okay, to the dark ages in just a moment. I, I honestly don't even know how to explain the pain. It just felt like someone was stabbing me constantly into my lower stomach. The pain feels like a cat is scratching inside your uterus walls. I've broken my shoulder before and that doesn't even compare to the pain of endo. I've only just realised pretty much now that I'm 25 that I was not having a normal period all these times. It was deemed normal to have a bit of pain, so you'd go to school, you couldn't do PE, but no one knew what was wrong, so you kind of just toughed your way through it. I've only got a split second to say to someone, I'm going to faint, and then I'm on the floor having a fit. We're back and we're ready to go into the Middle Ages now, 12th to 13th centuries. Travis, what's next in our, in our journey? So what we can see is there's a continuation of the belief that if the uterus is not fulfilling its role, it will cause pain or be irregular. It's from a, a Greek physician named uh, Paul of Aginia. He wrote about the suffocation of the womb, so there's that recurring theme. But he starts to write about an illness, that this might be an illness of lascivious women. So women who have feelings or overt sexual interest or desire. And it could be associated with women who use drugs to prevent contraception. So it's not until the 12th of the 13th century by a document that's named the Trotula, was a, actually written by a female physician, Trota of Salerno and is considered the world's first gynecologist. And she has a treatment and prescribes 
this treatment for uterine suffocation. Powder be made of the testicles of a fox or a kid and that this be injected into the vagina by means of a tampon. So in the 13th century, we have a medical manuscript called MS Ashmole 399. And this shows a woman who's doubled over in pain, suspected from the abdomen. And this is represented as the strangulation of the womb, which takes us to the 16th century. And we have a physician who wrote about the treatment of this this suffocation. I am astonished by some who will more willingly take 20 different drugs than endure one bloodletting that is necessary given its great ease and simplicity. Drugs have considerable drawbacks, not to mention the nausea, the upset stomach and severe intestinal cramps they usually bring about. We then have Ambrose Pear, who from 1510 to 1590 was France's leading physician. He was a surgeon to four successive kings and he adhered to the Hippocrates theories. He noted that women who suffered from suffocation of the womb were in so much agony that they believed themselves near death. Married women who abstained from sexual relations were most afflicted with the disorder, and he believed that virgins and widows were also at risk because of this. And that leads us to William Harvey, who's an English physician who held similar similar beliefs that sexual abstinence or unhealthy menstrual blood caused hysteria. How many incurable diseases of the blood are brought about by unhealthy menstrual discharges or from over-abstinence of sexual intercourse when the passions are strong? If women continue too long unwedded, they will be seized with serious symptoms, hysterics, furor uterinus, or fall into a coquetic state and distempers of various kinds. That leads us into the 17th century. We're starting to get where this is trending. But in the 17th century, we're starting to now seize the rise of saints, of magic, of angels and of demons coming into the the culture. And so we start to get what we call, so hysteria and hysteria fits and epilepsies are signs that are attributed to demonic possession and madness and witchcraft. And what we find is that they believe that pain was the originator of madness. And in 1642, there's an engraving called The Pilgrimage of the Epileptics to Church at Molenbeek, where women who were suffering from hysteria-related epileptic-like fits, there was a legend that if they jumped over the bridge leading to the shrine, they would be free for an illness for a year. However, by the time of the engraving, the symptoms had been dis- construed to a sign of mass outbreak of dancing mania or demonic possession and the women in the engraving aren't jumping they're actually being thrown off the bridge into the water because this is the known cure but again we're starting to get the link that hysteria and a wandering womb was going to transition to a psychological or neurological condition and then Because of this, hysteria was then linked to supernatural events that was clearly caused by, if it's bad, the devil. And so not only that, we have hysteria could be lead to mass hysteria. So it was effectively almost contagion. And therefore, there were laws and regulations put into place. England's Witchcraft Act of 1604 started to bring things into the courts and prosecution. They even had torture and executions for a range of symptoms that was put down to hysteria. And because symptoms could be caused by a witch, the things like fits or violent contortions or uncontrolled outbursts, there was even a case which goes down to the Salem witch trials when you've got children the age of 9 and 11 who are having these fits or violent contortions, the doctor diagnosed them with bewitchment. And so you have the spectacle of young women and girls screaming and crying and choking in the court, accusing people of witchcraft. The Salem witch trial led to 18 women being hanged for witchcraft, 
seven women dying in the jail and one man being pressed to death by stone after he refused to enter a plea. There's another case of a woman who was accused of causing hysteria to their neighbor's teenage daughter. And this woman was convicted and sent to the stocks for punishment. That then leads us to the 18th century. Now, fortunately, this demonology was falling out of favor. Uh, however, what it was re replaced with wasn't a huge improvement. And this, again, they believed that madness stemmed from the womb. You start to get womb fury. And again, one thing that we've mentioned, this furor utinerous appears. And, this, and we start to see the diagnoses appear of nymphomania and lovesickness. So we're starting to see the transition of a wandering womb turn into a hungry, even aggressive pursuit of motherhood. And we're starting to get into the realm of psychology, a belief associated with willful moral depravity or sexual desire. And one physician even stated immoderate inclination to venery. And this could be contagious. We have the French physician Claude Quillet, who wrote that not even convents were immune. These poor little devils of nuns, seeing themselves shut up within four walls, become madly in love, fall into a melancholic delirium, worked upon by the desires of the flesh, and in truth, what they need to be perfectly cured is a remedy of the flesh. So young women were especially susceptible to this disorder. There are references and writing of lascivious wombs hungry with desire. This was believed to be the curse of Eve. You know, the, the Bible references childbirth being painful because of the curse of the, from the great sin, the fall. But that was sort of then extrapolated to mean, well, painful menstruation was part of that. And so we've got a whole bunch of symptoms associated to hysteria, which are associated with the womb. Things like lying in bed for days, Nausea, vomiting, shivers, contractions, again, strangulation of the uterus, convulsions, bowel and bladder symptoms, an interrupted pulse, delirium, back pain, an unquiet mind. All this was linked to hysteria and a uterine conditions. That wasn't just, it was a result of the uterus and menarche rampaging furiously through the body, causing these violent disturbances that were anatomical, but that would lead to physiological damage. And then that leads us to the 19th century, where we start to find a very paternalistic approach, and that women were fragile and delicate, and that some physician believes women suffering from menstrual cramps should refrain from reading novels or listening to music because it might cause them overexcitement uh, and make their illness worse. You know, treatments during this time included things like hot douches or sponge tents, ovary compressors, uh, manual adjustment of the uterus because a uterus could be bumped out of place on a you know busy or bumpy carriage ride or horseback riding. Oh, there was morphine enemas. Opiates. The Queen Victoria's doctor prescribed monthly cannabis uh, to her, and we had uh, caustic elements such as iron, nitrate, mercury applied. There was also cases of leeches being used for menstrual condi conditions intravaginally. There's what they call tapping or puncturing, which is effectively uh, with a needle, and even clawing out lesions and blunt with blunt scissors or fingernails. This was just a really difficult time for women who had dysmenorrhea. And then this leads us, fortunately, into the 20th century, where we have the emergence of the specialty obstetrics and gynecology, where surgery with childbirth and removing cysts and urological disorders. And we find this is when endometriosis is identified as a diagnosis. We have histology emerging, so it is a disease that is underlied with pathology. Now, pregnancy was still encouraged as a treatment into the mid-20th century, 
but we began to learn a lot more about this disease and how to manage it. And also, we can spend a little bit of time defining some of these terms we've been talking about, Travis. Let's do that after the break. You have to get surgery and hopefully you don't have to keep having the surgery. I got diagnosed when I was 15, 16, roughly around then. I'm now 21 and in that period of time I've had six surgeries. I had surgery. Um, sadly for me they weren't able to remove all of it. It won't affect everybody but for me endometriosis has affected my fertility as well. You know I can't naturally fall pregnant. My gynaecologist has pretty much said that he doesn't see me being able to fall pregnant um, over the age of 30. Ironically there's a thing called endo belly where we get big flare-ups and we look nine months pregnant without the baby. I'll just note that Dr Nicole Sladden is joining us in the final part of this episode uh, to answer some questions from the perspective of pathology. But uh, Travis, you have mentioned a few terms, one that I've heard talked about a lot, that of hysteria. Uh, I wonder if you could work through some of the definitions of these terms thus far. Definitions give us a, a good basis to you know pull apart and work out what we're actually trying to talk about uh, sometimes. So a lot of this uses Greek, so if we talk about adeno, we're talking about glands, endo means within or inner. If we're talking about metro, it's indicating the uterus or myo is muscle. Uh, and this is why, you know, when you attach something at the end of a word, you know, it's important in, you know, medicine. So osis is a, a disease state or condition or itis is, a, is an inflammation. So when we look at, you know, a hysterio, that's Greek for uterus and womb. Uh, you know, so we still use the word these days as a hysterectomy, so it's a removal of the uterus. And hysteria still exists in our language today. Hysteria. Oxford Dictionary. One. Exaggerated or uncontrollable emotion or excitement. Two. Psychiatry. An old-fashioned term for a psychological disorder characterised by conversion of psychological stress into physical symptoms or a change in self-awareness. Hysteria. www.dictionary.com 1. An uncontrollable outburst of emotion or fear. Irrationality, laughter, weeping. 2. Psychoanalysis. A psychoneurotic disorder characterised by violent emotional outbreaks, disturbances of sensory and motor functions, and various abnormal effects due to auto-suggestion. They're from current references. And it's still, again, that premise of associated psychiatric or psychological illness exists in the definitions. Now, whether that's applied or not, uh, is for, for those who are, who are reading it. Let's look at the chemistry and the, the physiology behind endometrium. So when we're looking at the endometrium, it's the internal lining of the uterus, and it's composed of glands and stroma that proliferate and shed. Now, this is in the monthly cycle uh, that we give a standard 28 days. Now, not every woman adheres to that. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but from a medical perspective it, it helps us just to put it into the simple designation so the first 14 days is the follicular phase where the follicle develops the next 14 days is a luteal phase where the corpus luteum is preparing the body for pregnancy so during this time there's a mix of pituitary and ovarian hormones and if we look at the follicular phase we get a steady increase of estrogen as the follicle develops we have a mild increase in follicular stimulating hormone, but when we hit day 14, we get a sudden peak of luteinizing hormone from the pituitary. And this is to signify to the body that for ovulation to occur. And women's body has a slight raise in body temperature. That leads us to the luteal phase. And this is where progesterone, which is an ovarian hormone, starts to thicken up the endometrium to get ready for implantation. And this is why when we do a day 21 test, we're actually testing the peak level of the progesterone to make sure that's enough for the body to produce a suitable environment for a pregnancy to occur. We then have those peak measurements. And this is why when we're looking at the oral contraceptive pill, 
we effectively stop the cycle and you just get a stabilized hormone level so you don't get these ovulations occurring and the shedding occurring because the, the hormones have all been stabilized. And so when we do this testing, we're testing for the hormone levels and if there's issues with subfertility or infertility, we can assess the levels and say, is it doing what it's physiologically meant to be doing? Just as a side, you know, subfertility or infertility, 10 to 15% of couples have an issue with this. And a rule of thumb is the rule of thumb of thirds. So if people are having trouble with subfertility or infertility, tends to be about a third tends to be male associated problems. A third tends to be female associated problems. And the, the remainder third is because of a, a, a mix of male and female factors. But that leads us to dysmenorrhea. And there's a range of differential diagnoses that can cause this. There's primary dysmenorrhea. So this is, has recurrent crampings and suprocubic pain before or during the period for two to three days. Other diagnoses like pelvic inflammatory disease or things we call leomyoma, which is fibroids of the uterus, chronic pelvic pain. And the two ones that we're sort of interested in here is endometriosis and adenomyosis. And adenomyosis is glands occurring within the wall of the uterus, but that occurs in up to 20% of uteruses. So there is a wide spectrum of people who have symptoms with that and who don't have symptoms with that. There is a definition of endometriosis we have. The presence of functional endometrial type tissue outside of the uterus that is active or have the effect of normal physiology. So when we look at that, we have, there's only one definitive way to confirm a diagnosis and that's through laparoscopy. So if someone takes some histology and shows that there is that endometrial tissue outside the cavity where it shouldn't be, that is confirmed endometriosis. Now, not every patient needs to have that. Some will have a clinical assessment of endometriosis, but that is one way to confirm the diagnosis. And what they've looked for in uh, history uh, is when they're looking, they call them chocolate cysts. And this is because in the cavity of the abdomen, they're brown type cysts. And this is because, again, just like functional endometrium in the uterus, it will proliferate and bleed. And then that degeneration of, of blood goes hemocytor and turns brown. And that's why they can either call them chocolate cysts or endometriomas. This can be associated with pain, inflammation, scarring, and subfertility or infertility. The symptoms associated with this are menstrual irregularities, severely painful periods. A number of people, about 30 to 40% people present with fertility issues, but they can even have what we call dyspareunia which is pain during sexual intercourse. So when we look at where the common sites are, when a laparoscopy is occurring, the most common site for this to occur is on the ovary. Second is uterine ligaments. There are things in the recto-vaginal septum. Then we've got the cul-de-sac, which is anterior and posterior, the pelvic peritoneum, the bowel, and the cervix, vagina, and fallopian tubes. But other organs can be involved this is the intestines, the rectum, the bladder. Even abdominal surgical scars can have endometrial deposits go on them. Mm. Symptoms will be associated with areas that are affected, such as like the rectum can have painful bowel motions. The bladder can have dysuria or painful urination. When we look at the risk factors, the only real known risk factors are someone who has a, an affected first-degree relative, either a mother, a sister, or a daughter, and then an anatomically abnormal uterus. People who get pregnancy later has been noted as a risk factor. However, social factors have changed that, and just the general population is getting pregnant later. So I'm not so sure that that's actually a useful risk factor these days. And here's the thing, despite all of our advances and our knowledge, we still don't know how endometrius occurs. There's a few theories. There is a theory about endometrial tissue implanting at other sites via retrograde menstrual endometrium. 
through like the fallopian tubes into the pelvis. There is a, a different theory about what they say, benign metastasis theory, that endometrial tissue spreads from the uterus via blood vessels or lymphatics. There's a metaplastic theory that the lining, or internal lining of the uh, peritoneum goes endometrial differentiation. There is a theory about extrauterine stem cells coming from the bone marrow and then implanting elsewhere that becomes endometrium. So we do know there is some molecular differences between uh, women with endometrial implants and those without, but we still don't have a good reason as to why this occurs. What a journey. Travis, thank you for that. We're going to come back in just a moment and Dr. Nicole Sladden will be with us. It blows my mind that endometriosis isn't made that aware in today's society. For people out there, I just feel like they need to understand that you need to be kind, supportive, and just try and understand. Endometriosis has no cure. It's there for life. So you need to learn to live with it. You need to find your support networks. And you just need to hold faith that we will get enough funding that we can find a cure. We need research into this condition. and. If we keep this awareness up, if we keep talking about it, if we get that funding, the young girls growing up now will hopefully have that cure. As mentioned earlier, we're going to welcome to the podcast anatomical pathologist, Dr. Nicole Sladden. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks very much, Steve. Nice to be here. We're really looking forward to you being able to put endometriosis in some kind of context for us. But firstly... In an Australian context, how common is endometriosis uh, in Australia? So we know that it affects about 1 in 10 Australian women, uh, girls and transgender men. And that gives us a prevalence of about 700,000 people. Um, it can affect um it can affect females really from the age of menarche um, through to the post-menarchal period. So there's a there's a conception that because this is a hormonally driven disease, um, that it only affects people within the reproductive years. But actually, you can continue to have symptoms um, post uh, menopause. Um, in in occasional cases, we know that it's responsible for up to somewhere between 50 to 70% of um, presentations of women who have chronic pelvic pain um, or a contributing factor to their chronic pelvic pain. And we also know that endometriosis is found in a disproportionately large number of women experiencing infertility. Something that we've all, uh, those of us who are lay people, come to understand in recent time, thanks to COVID-19, is that some diseases can be asymptomatic and it seems that endometriosis is no exception. How common is the asymptomatic version or the silent endometriosis as it's known? Well, when we look at women who undergo laparoscopy uh, for an indication that's not associated clinically with any suspicion of endometriosis, we still find endometriosis in about 8% of those. So extrapolating from that data, we assume that the rate of silent or asymptomatic endometriosis in our community is somewhere around 8% of people. From your perspective, is that scary to think that you could have it without the symptoms or do you get by with a pass? <laughs> no, um, that's not scary at all because the extent of endometriosis, what we're talking about here is differentiating between the presence of endometriosis and the extent and effect of endometriosis. Mm -hmm. um, from a pathological process, endometriosis can be diagnosed on the basis of a tiny nodule of stromal cells, no bigger than, oh gosh, um, the end of a, a, a pen nib, you know, a couple of millimetres in size. And that would qualify as the presence of endometriosis. Um, but endometriosis can also be an extensive disease affecting the entire peritoneum associated with scar tissue and causing um, what is clinically referred to as a frozen pelvis, meaning uh, so much scar tissue in the pelvis that the organs are not free to move anymore. Oh. Uh, it doesn't surprise me or alarm me at all that there are many people walking around with small amounts of asymptomatic endometriosis that won't cause them any um, ill effects. What a spectrum. Um, what are the most common mm. presentations of endometriosis? Really, they're divided into uh, 
two main groups. The first and by far the most uh, common is pelvic pain. Endometriosis usually presents with symptoms before the age of 20 uh, and many young women describe endometriosis type pain from very early on uh, after they experience menarche um, with some describing it from the very first menstrual cycle that they have. So normal period pain is associated with uterine pain and the referred pain that uh, goes along with it. So um, referred pain means that we experience pain in an area that is not itself uh, undergoing any inflammation or tissue damage, but we experience it because the nerves that innervate that region also innervate the area that is undergoing uh, inflammation or tissue damage. In the case of the uterus, um, the classic example would be the experience of back pain, even though there's no um, uh, abnormality occurring within the back. And um, that we also see that in, in labour. A lot of women have um, back pain during labour. It's just because of the shared innovation uh, to the area. Endometriosis-associated pain is said to be more extensive in its distribution, uh, more severe in its um, uh, in its intensity, uh, and can be experienced not just during the menstrual cycle, but in the um, uh, days leading up to a menstrual cycle. The other thing to say about pelvic pain associated with uh, endometriosis is that it begins in the manner that I just described where there's a, a clear association with the menstrual cycle. Uh, but if it goes on for many years, particularly if it's undertreated or, or dismissed or not recognised as being abnormal, then the pain can become uh, more chronic relapsing remitting and it can be experienced outside of the normal menstrual cycle as well. So that's the first um, uh, troubling clinical presentation. The other presentation is for that group of women who haven't uh, been recognised as having endometriosis but who are trying to conceive and failing to do so um, and for whom endometriosis presents a barrier to fertility. Is this one of the more challenging conditions or diseases for you know, GPs and frontline health professionals to be diagnosing given uh, what you've told us so far? You know, I think that's a really interesting um, question. Is it challenging to diagnose? The problem with endometriosis, as I see it, is that coming to a definitive diagnosis requires a biopsy to be taken. Um, and right. undertaking a biopsy for endometriosis means that you have to undergo laparoscopy, so you have to be referred to a gynaecologist. Uh, the gynaecologist has to um, cut small holes in the, in the abdomen, uh, insert laparoscopic... Um, ports, look for endometriosis, find it, take the biopsy and then send the biopsy to us for, for diagnosis. So I, I suspect that part of the reason that endometriosis has been so grossly underdiagnosed historically is because there was either a lack of access to gynaecologists able to um, or available to perform that, that um, diagnostic procedure or there was a perception of a lack of access to gynaecologists. Um, a putative clinical diagnosis is made by GPs in their practice every day of the week, I'm sure. It's a, it's a very common problem. Um, and it's a, a diagnosis clinically made on the basis of the symptoms that the patient uh, is describing, uh, the absence of any, un, any other um, explicable pathology, and also their response or lack thereof to appropriate medical therapy. So appropriate medical therapy is usually um, directed at controlling symptoms. Uh, and mm. that would be, first of all, first line is uh, analgesia, um, plus or minus the addition of the combined oral contraceptive pill because that can help to, um, uh, to, to stop normal menstrual cycles and that helps to stop the cycling of the endometriosis as well as the native endometrium um, or some patients also uh, um, undergo mirena insertion and there are many GPs who can uh, do that so that's the that's the amount of management that can be undertaken prior to referral to a gynecologist if that's deemed necessary. So Nicole when you mentioned the analgesia there does that harken back to what I mentioned right at the beginning of this podcast the, the recollections of those little blue tablets that I remember having <laughs> being sent out to fetch in time urgent uh, manner is that the sort of thing you're talking about? That's exactly the sort of thing so um 
analgesia is usually uh, targeted at non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and the, the medication you're probably referring to is a very old one called Ponstan, um, which is said to be the most effective um, for menstrual pain and for endometriosis type pain in that, in that category. Um, simple analgesia like uh, paracetamol is also uh, helpful, but as we've said, this can be an intensely painful um, condition and there are a lot of people for whom the, the, that, that level of analgesia may be helpful but, but yet inadequate. Now, with what we know, mm. are there any things to look for that are predisposing factors, if you like, or, or known risk factors mm. for endometriosis? Sure. The, the main risk factor is being biologically female. Female, And I don't say that, um, you know, tongue in cheek. It, it, it's quite <laughs> obvious that you, you, right. need to be, you need to be a woman um, because it's such a common condition. But also we know that there's mm -hmm. an increased um uh, incidence of endometriosis in first-degree relatives. So if you have a mother who or aunties who've had severe endometriosis or sisters, then it is more likely that you'll present with it. Realistically, um, it's such a common condition. It's not a, it's not a case of predisposing factors so much as um, the patient giving an appropriate history. What would you expect to be the pathway that a patient would take from a GP to a gynaecologist if it goes down that way? So, Steve, the criteria um, that a patient needs to meet in order to um, warrant referral to a gynaecologist are, are relatively straightforward. Um, the first one is um, if uh, the GP um, is needing to seek specialist input for um, medical management of endometriosis. Um, and they can make that referral if after six months of um, treatment, me meaning, as we said before, analgesia, the contraceptive pill, plus, plus or minus the Mirena, uh, if after six months the patient is still experiencing unacceptable s symptoms, that's a reason for referral. Um, the other uh, second reason would be if a patient is trying to conceive and is having no success between after six to 12 months, uh, six months if they have symptoms and 12 months if they haven't, that's another very strong reason for referral to a gynaecologist. Um, and the third reason to send somebody, it would be simply because the patient is requesting it. Right. And that would happen from time to time, I imagine, in this day and age, as people do their own research and, and talk to friends and, and colleagues. Absolutely. And there, there's been, mm. historically, unfortunately, there's been a very lengthy delay between onset, first onset of symptoms and referral. And that's harking back to what we were talking about before, that, it, uh, that there were um, always conceptual limitations to actually being able to access a gynaecologist. And also because... Sadly, historically, um, women's pain associated with menstruation was often um, not taken as seriously as it ought to have been. But yes, um, the, so we still have quite a lot of um, anecdotal experience of individuals who've, experi who, who've experienced a, a substantial delay of many years to um, referral for diagnosis. But I truly believe that that is improving. And my colleagues who are in gynaecology um, tell me that they are seeing younger and younger women being referred. And this is a good thing. Now, Nicole, I've learned in the many episodes with Travis Brown that uh, you pathologists like to classify things. So what are the different types of classification we use for endometriosis? That's, that's a very good point, uh, Steve. Look, the... Um the interesting thing from a pathology perspective is that we don't classify endometriosis because the classification that's undertaken or at least the scoring systems that are undertaken are undertaken by the gynaecologist. So at the time of laparoscopy, right. a gynaecologist will assess uh, the extent of endometriosis. So um, typically uh, it involves the region around the adnexa, um, the region near the um, ureters behind the uterus in the pouch of Douglas, you know, low pelvic areas, but it can extend anywhere within the abdomen. It's been known to involve the diaphragm. Um, very rarely we see it travel through the diaphragm and into the pleural cavity, which is obviously um, mm. quite an alarming extent of disease for anybody to have to experience. Uh, so the, the, the the gynaecologist at laparoscopy will first of all assess, assess excuse me, the extent of disease. 
Um, the next thing they do is focus quite clearly on assessing the ovary, the fimbria and the fallopian tube on each side. Um, so there's a, there's a specialised scoring system that they use um, called the least function scoring system. And uh, that's part, that forms part of the endometriosis fertility index. What they're really focusing on is how much is endometriosis or an associated scarring affecting the ability of the um, ovary to produce eggs and to release eggs? And how much is it affecting the ability of the fallopian tube to cover the ovary, which is what it does in the middle of a um, menstrual cycle, um, capture an um, egg or embryo as it's been um, released uh, and then transport that, em that embryo through the fallopian tube into the uterus. So they um, assess the extent of, um, of disease on a mild, moderate, severe or no function at all system. Uh, and then they will take their tissue biopsies from the uh, peritoneum and if they need to from the ovary itself and send those to us for assessment. So what do we see down the microscope? Well, um, in the peritoneal biopsies, classically, we see endometrial glands, which are lined by columnar epithelial cells, surrounded by a supporting network of stromal cells and sometimes associated with uh, blood which may be fresh blood or old blood evidence that there's been um, cyclical damage as i said to you at the beginning of this uh, of this recording the um, extent mm. of endometriosis can be really tiny and focal but the more endometriosis there is the more likely i as a pathologist am to to see associated scar tissue and chronic inflammation and we know that those things go together with endometriosis and we know that they in fact impact on fertility the last thing I would say um, about the pathological assessment of endometriosis is that endometriomas, meaning um, masses of endometriosis that are found within the ovary, are um, unique uh, in that they quite often can be quite large. Uh, they can overrun the remnant ovarian tissue so that there's not very much ovary left and that contributes to poor functional reserve for the woman. And when we look at them down the microscope, because of the repeated cycles of um, bleeding that, uh, that accompany those endometriomas, often what we see is scarring, um, old blood, chronic inflammation and not very much residual endometrial lining or stroma at all. Um, we can still diagnose that as endometriosis in an appropriate clinical setting. Uh, but again, the, the presence of an endometrioma on either or both ovaries is significantly correlated with impaired fertility. Do we have any screening tests yet, screening tests that are useful? None that I'm aware of. Um, the patient's history is still the best, uh, the, the best tool that we have for um, picking out people who um, are of concern and warrant... Dr Nicole Sladden. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the stories there and we'd love to have you along.